Radio Sustain, a journal of fair trade, resilient rural communities, safe food, and a healthy environment. Brought to you by IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. This edition of Radio Sustain is for February 18, 2009. I'm Allison Page at IATP in Minneapolis. Today on the program, David Willinga talks about mercury and high fructose corn syrup. Kathleen Schuler explains Healthy Legacy's goals for this legislative session. Alexandra Spieldock discusses the Madrid high-level meeting on food security for all. And Alexander Strickner tells us about the latest World Social Forum. Recent reports have examined mercury's presence in high fructose corn syrup, including an IATP study that tested common foods and beverages containing high fructose corn syrup for mercury. Ben Lilliston discusses the findings and what should happen next with IATP's Dr. David Wolinga, who co-authored both reports. David, tell us what you found in your study of common food and beverage products. We went out and tested 55 retail products, brand name products, both beverages and food products that were high in high fructose corn syrup. And we found that in about one third of them, there was detectable mercury in those products. Why do you think the mercury in the foods you tested came from high fructose corn syrup? Well, everything that we know points in that direction, certainly. For one thing, high fructose corn syrup is either the most common ingredient or the second most common ingredient in all those food items that we tested. Second of all, at the same time our report came out, a different study came out that had actually tested high fructose corn syrup and found mercury detectable in about half the samples. And that was high fructose corn syrup that was collected by the FDA. So how does mercury, or how could mercury, get into high fructose corn syrup? Well, that's a good question. High fructose corn syrup is a really complex manufactured item, and in its manufacturer, a lot of different food-grade chemicals are used, like caustic soda, for example. Well, it turns out that caustic soda can itself be manufactured in three different ways, and one of them involves an outdated technology that relies on the use of mercury, and we think that that outdated technology contaminates the high fructose corn syrup that comes out of the plants using that technology with mercury. Well, how common is this mercury cell technology in chlorine plants? Well, it used to be more common than it is today, but it's still pretty widely used. About 10% of chlorine plant production in the U.S. today still uses this outdated mercury cell technology. Worldwide, the figure is probably higher. For example, Europe, about one in three chlorine plants still use this mercury cell technology, putting the products that come out of those plants at risk for being contaminated with mercury. What are the concerns with mercury? What are the public health concerns, both for adults and children? Well, mercury is a heavy metal, and it's one of the most studied and one of the more toxic things that we know about in the environment. And the problem is that mercury comes in a lot of different forms, and all the forms are toxic. Some of the things that we know mercury contributes to are problems with brain development, toxicity to the heart, to the kidney, and to the immune system. 
we think that not everybody's as vulnerable as the next person. The most vulnerable part of the population are little children and fetuses in the womb. And for them in particular, even low levels of mercury exposure can throw their brain development off course. Are the amounts of mercury found in high fructose corn syrup worrisome? Well, sure. Uh, any additional mercury exposure is worrisome because mercury in all its forms is toxic. The mercury exposure that we want is no exposure at all. What is concerning to me is a couple of things. One, our studies and the, the other studies that were recently published seem to show that there is mercury in high fructose corn syrup. That being the case, we eat a lot of high fructose corn syrup. It may be 1 in 10 calories consumed by Americans on average. And you add those things together, and it could mean that there's a significant source of additional mercury exposure that we didn't even think about before. This would be on top of what people are already getting through contaminated fish or seafood, for example. What needs to be the next step from your view, from governments and from industry in response to these findings? Well, first of all, we're calling on Congress to pass legislation that, among others, Senator Obama, when he was in the Senate, sponsored. And that was legislation that would have phased out the use of this outdated mercury technology in chlorine plants. That would be a long-term solution to the problem. In the interim, though, we think it's also important that corn refining companies stop using this caustic soda and other chemicals from these outdated mercury-using plants to make their high-fructose corn syrup. This is, in fact, easy to do because these companies can buy caustic soda for making high-fructose corn syrup that comes from other chlorine plants that don't use mercury. And then finally, we don't know that the companies that are putting high fructose corn syrup in their beverages or their other food products know where that high fructose corn syrup comes from or, or what kind of caustic soda went into it. But we think it's important that they ask the other companies providing them with the high fructose corn syrup whether or not it was produced with mercury or not. Legacy is a Minnesota-based coalition working to reduce the presence of known toxic chemicals in our food and consumer products. This state-based work feeds into national efforts to set up a better regulatory system for toxic chemicals that protects public health. I sat down with IETB's Kathleen Schuler, who is co-director of the Healthy Legacy Coalition, to get the latest on efforts to reduce toxic chemicals in consumer products. So Kathleen, could you give us just a little background on what Healthy Legacy is? Yeah, Healthy Legacy is a public health coalition. It's a statewide coalition working on policies in the state of Minnesota. And basically our mission is to work for safe products made safely. We'd like to eliminate toxic chemicals from everyday consumer products. What are Healthy Legacy's new bills this year? Well, we're working on a couple of bills. One of them we worked on last session, and that is bisphenol A in products for young children, children under three. Last session, we had a bill that covered phthalates and bisphenol A. Now phthalates are banned at the federal level. So our bill would just phase out bisphenol A in products like baby bottles, sippy cups, formula can linings, baby food jars, things like that. Products just designed for young kids. 
the second bill that we're working on is the Toxic Free Kids Act. And instead of going chemical by chemical, which we've been doing, and it's really important because we want to get the low-hanging fruit. We want to get the chemicals that are really risky to children, like bisphenol A is a hormone-disrupting chemical. And early life, low-dose exposures can cause lifelong adverse health effects. But there are other chemicals besides bisphenol A that are out there. So the Toxic Free Kids Act sets forth a framework for regulating all chemicals in children's products. And it calls for the Pollution Control Agency to generate a list of chemicals of high concern. These are chemicals that would be hormone disruptors, carcinogens, reproductive toxins, or chemicals that are persistent or bioaccumulative in the environment. So we know they're bad because they, they never go away. They would generate that list and then they would also look at whether or not there was human exposure. Are we finding it in the human body? Are we finding it in the environment? Is it in wildlife? Is it in fish? Is it in our food? And then is it in children's products? So they generate a second smaller list of priority chemicals that are in children's products. And then they would phase out a handful of chemicals in a couple of years and a handful of chemicals two years later. They would be actually assisted by the fact that there's an interstate chemicals clearinghouse that's been established at the University of Massachusetts Lowell so that states that have similar bills, they would share information among states. So what are the advantages of working at the state level versus the federal level? That's a really good question. We're working at the state level because the federal agency, the EPA, uh, the law that governs industrial chemicals, which is the Toxic Substances Control Act, or TSCA, really fails to protect public health. In the 30 years the TSCA has existed, they've only taken five chemicals off the market. They've only required safety testing on 200 chemicals. So. That law is really not protecting us, and we don't really see reform on the horizon, at least yet. And we saw with phthalates how it really makes a difference. If you have states pushing at the state level, a lot of states introduced phthalate bans, and now we have a phthalate ban at the federal level. So we're hoping that the same can happen with the broader chemical policy reform. So what can everyday consumers be doing to avoid these chemicals? Well, Healthy Legacy has a safer children's products guide, which is available on the Healthy Legacy website and the ITP website and the Health Observatory website. ITP also has a smart plastics guide so that you can find safer products. But the problem is it does require research on the part of parents. So while we're working at the policy level, we want parents to be able to go to the store and know that all products are free of bisphenol A and other toxic chemicals. Well, great. Thanks so much, Kathleen. That's You're welcome. Thank you. You, you cannot take anything away from me. My spirit won't break because there's nothing left, you see. You want to take your poison arrow and pierce it through my heart. But no sad songs for the sparrow. I was dead right from the start. I was dead right from the start I got strength in my mind I got strength in my soul And now we'll never fit Fit into a mode Cause oh I know me better Than you will ever know so why don't you just leave me, please leave me alone. 
Last summer, the UN Food and Agriculture Organization hosted a high-level conference on world food security to discuss the growing food crisis. Since then, the food crisis has only gotten worse. In January, the UN and the Spanish government organized a follow-up meeting, the Madrid High-Level Meeting on Food Security for All, which IETP's Anne-Laure Constantin and Alexander Spielduck attended. I sat down with Alexander to discuss what happened at the meeting and what will happen next to address the global food crisis. Could you give a little background about the Madrid High-Level Meeting on Food Security for All and what some of the goals of the meeting were and also who was there? Sure. The meeting was a follow-up, in fact, to a Rome summit on the food crisis, which took place last June, June 2008, where governments, UN agencies, the different intergovernmental institutions, civil society gathered to talk about how to respond to the growing food crisis at that time, which has since grown that much larger. And there have been different meetings since the Rome meeting where governments have gathered to talk about what they might be able to do. And the World Bank and the IMF have all discussed the food crisis at different points as well. This meeting was sponsored by the United Nations and the Spanish government to jumpstart some kind of more immediate action and political momentum to do something about what has been a worsening situation. And so they organized a two-day meeting. And at this meeting, much of what was discussed were, in broad terms, short-term, medium, and long-term measures to look at the structural problems in agriculture, the need for research, the need for more investment, and also the need to support small-scale farmers. They also talked about what was called a global partnership on food and agriculture. And this became a central piece of the discussion that took place over the course of two days. At the meeting, there were approximately 126 governments. There were the different intergovernmental agencies. There were representatives from the private sector as well. Monsanto was there. The Alliance for Green Revolution in, in Africa was there. And there were a handful of civil society groups that attended. And IATP was one of them. Via Campesina was there. Some of the more traditional development agencies like Oxfam and ActionAid International were there. But the number of civil society groups was actually quite small because of the cost and also the lateness of the invitations that were sent out. Were there many farmers there? There were very few farmers there. There were a few representatives from Via Campesina, but otherwise that was a major criticism of the meeting that in fact those voices that need to be heard the most, farmers and peasant groups, were noticeably absent from this discussion. So what was the outcome? Well, it's interesting. As I stated, the global partnership was discussed during the course of these two days, and it was clear that there was a confusion and perhaps disagreement among the different entities about what a global partnership should look like. So on the one hand, there is support for the global partnership really being a UN initiative in which more funds need to be funneled into the UN to support the UN. There was another proposal that it be housed in the UN, but that it not be solely a UN process, including different entities. And what that looks like, nobody's really clear about. And then there was a kind of a third proposal that it would largely be an initiative that would be shaped by donor countries and recipient governments. So the G8, for example, working with recipient countries and the private sector to increase productive investments in agriculture. And really what was so interesting and also disturbing is that, in fact, while there was general agreement about the need for a global partnership, there wasn't agreement about what it really is. And therefore, in terms of out 
outcomes of the meeting, it was confusing. It is confusing thinking about what will happen next. So it's very unclear where all of this is going. We could see things move very quickly. Certainly, if it's an initiative that's directed by the private sector and working through the G8 and the World Bank, or we could see that it's a longer term effort that really is a more positive process. And ITP is really hoping for the latter. And we're monitoring the process, as are a few other groups. And and also, really, from our own end, calling for what is a global contract on food and agriculture, but one that prioritizes farmers, local investment, resilient agriculture, the right to food, stable markets, and sustainable production methods that don't hurt the environment. And and all of this must be central to any new governance system in food and agriculture moving forward. Activists, NGOs, trade unionists, and others from around the world have gathered together for what is known as the World Social Forum, an annual meeting that aims to create a more just and democratic world. This year's forum was held in Belém, Brazil. ITP's Alexandra Strickner attended this year's World Social Forum, and we spoke with her about how participants were responding to the financial, food, and climate crises. So what is the World Social Forum, and who attends? Okay. Well, the World Social Forum was established in the early years of 2000 as a counter-event to the World Economic Forum that every year takes place end of January, beginning of February in Davos, where basically uh, governments and leaders, CEOs of many different transnational corporations meet to discuss the global economy and what they think should be done to, to continue with that path of globalization. So the World Social Forum uh, has been started as an alternative space to discuss what social movements and all these groups think mm-hmm. should be the alternative that should be promoted. And it has become a biannual space where all these groups at a global level meet to collectively discuss in many different workshops and seminars very concrete experiences and alternatives. What discussions did you participate in? I was actively co-organizing a space for global networks and regional networks to meet and present their ongoing discussions in relation to what solutions, what answers Mm. do we uh, need to have to the current global crisis in its complexity, in its Mm -hmm. totality, whether it's the financial crisis, the food crisis, the water crisis, the climate crisis, the energy crisis. It was a very interesting space that we had because it really was clearly merging that all these networks said we need to really build a new economic system. We need to refound the core values of this economic system. We need to transform the growth model. We need to transform the concept of competition that we know. Mm-hmm. And we really need to, to build another economic system that is much more strongly rooted in localized economy, in regional integration, in local carbon economies and in economies where the producers and the consumers are much more closely linked back 
to each other again mm-hmm. so that there is more direct contact between them. And I think the discussions ongoing in relation to agriculture and food is close to what is promoted also. Sustain is a project of IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Find us on the web at iatp.org. Radio Sustain is produced by Ben Lilliston. Radio Sustain's engineer is Patrick Sy. The music on the program was Tall Fiddler by Deo, Heartbeats by The Knife, Piano Song by The Heartless Bastards, Way Out by The Yeah Yeah Yeahs, and True Affection by The Blow. I'm Allison Page. Thanks for listening.